from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Ross Gallagher, Venture Directors at 11FS. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? This week, we're talking investment platform Crowdcube acquire Semper, find out everything that's happening in the secondary share space. Oak North are getting into business banking. How are they going to solve for the unique needs of SMEs? And are NFTs a laughing stock? Well, find out what our panel predicts uh, at the end of the show. We get into all this and much more in today's show. Also, a quick disclaimer that we're only human and there might be a little bit of extra background noise this week, so please do bear with us. We'll be back with you after these messages. Hello and welcome to episode 802 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, Ventures Director here at 11FS, and I am joined this week in Fintech Insider News by some great guests who are here to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, it's a Fintech Insider welcome to Matt Cooper, the co-CEO at Crowdcube. Um, Matt, it's really great uh, to have you on. I know uh, it's been a busy week for you guys. We'll get into that when we get into the news, but uh, maybe you can just give us a a little intro uh, to yourself and what you do. Yeah. Hey, Ross. Thanks for uh, having me on the pod. I'm Matt Cooper. I'm the co-CEO of of Crowdcube. Uh, We're the largest marketplace for Retail and mass affluent investment into private companies in the, the UK and Europe. Um, great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you, Matt. Um, and thanks thanks for joining. Um, we are also delighted, as ever, to welcome back Valentina Christensen, Director of Growth and Communications at Oak North. Um, Val, I don't really think you need to do this, but maybe for some of our newer listeners, you could just sort of reintroduce yourself. Sure, thanks so much for having me on. So I'm Val Christensen, the Director of Growth and Communications at Oak North. Uh, for, those of the, for those of you who may not be familiar with Oak North, um, we are a fintech on a mission to empower the missing middle, so businesses that we call, um, that we uh, have between a million to a hundred million revenue uh, that um, that we feel are underserved, overlooked by traditional financial services. Amazing. Great uh, to have you, Val, as ever. And I know um, an exciting week for uh, you guys over at Oak North as well. So uh, we'll get on into that as we uh, as we go through the show as well. Um, and then uh, a FinTech Insider debut for Olivia Minnick, uh, Senior Partnership Manager at MMOB and formerly the editor of FinTech Alliance. So Olivia, um, delighted to have you. Thanks for joining us. Maybe you can just introduce yourself again, give us a little bit of uh, background and, and, and sort of what you do. Hi, Ross. Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. Um, as a recovering editor, I'm more used to ans- asking questions than answering them, but I'll do my best here. It's really great to, to join you all. Um, just for those who don't know, MMOB is an embedded services provider. So we act as basically a universal API adapter, plugging in features like uh, insurance products, wealth products, uh, credit products, etc., cetera, uh, into new distribution channels, uh, which could be e-commerce websites, digital banks, any anywhere where they're wanting to offer a fully embedded experience. Amazing. I like that recovering editor. Well, thanks for jumping <laughs> in and letting me letting me flip the tables um, and ask the questions. That's uh, that's really good of you. Um, all right, excellent. Well, look, that's the uh, that's the panel. So let's uh, let's dive in. Let's get into the news. Our first story comes from uh, Sifted with a headline: Crowdcube acquires investment startup Semper. So, Crowdcube, uh, Europe's largest market investment platform has helped raise over £1 billion for companies including Monzo and Revolut. They've recently announced the acquisition of Semper, a secondary funding platform for an undisclosed fee. The deal was done in response to volatility in the public markets and a slowdown in growth stage venture investment. Crowdcube claims the move, quote, creates unprecedented access for retail, and high net worth investors to participate alongside institutional investors in secondary transactions within Europe's most exciting private companies. Now, rather than quote the uh, the company's press release, uh, we can talk to the man himself. So Matt, maybe you can just give us some insight um, around uh, the acquisition, the timing, just generally uh, the, the sort of background to this one. Yeah, sure. I think um, maybe I'll dive into the sort of industrial logic behind the the transaction and i guess that's centered around four themes for us and and the team at semper um so the first theme is really that this gives us massively expanded 
secondary liquidity capability across the EU at a point in time where we think and we know focus is very much shifting to the importance of alternative solutions and approaches to employee liquidity and investor liquidity. Um, so that's really the first bit that we, we considered. Like This is a very opportune timing um, uh, in terms of people looking for alternative provisions for liquidity. The second is uh, we've always had this, this mission and vision of um, democratizing access to private market investments. And actually, we think it's exceptionally exciting that retail and, and, and what we define as mass affluent investors uh, can now get access to you know, the very best late stage private market assets outside of just the primary funding windows that, that we do and are pretty well known for now. Thirdly, we've got a big portfolio of companies. You mentioned a couple in the intro in terms of uh, Monzo and Revolut. Um, we've actually got more than a thousand companies in our portfolio uh, and it's growing uh, month on month, year on year as we, we fundraise continually for businesses across the UK and Europe. And a lot of that portfolio that we worked with three, four, five years ago is starting to consider how to manage reasonably substantial liquidity events for their Crowdcube investors at scale. And this acquisition gives us the expertise, the capability and the technology to do that really, really seamlessly for companies. And then the last piece is around um, the network effect that acquiring the business gives us in France and Northern Europe and the EU more generally. Um, the Semper founders, Matthias and Balthasar, are immensely well connected and respected in the, the French ecosystem in particular. And that's one of the fastest growth areas of our business at the moment. Uh, we're supporting uh, more and more French companies and connecting them with more and more French mass affluent investors than we ever have done previously. Um, and bringing the, the network effect to bear that having um, Matthias and Balthazar in the, in the business alongside the wider team, as well as 30 of the most prominent tech investor and founder uh, that you could possibly hope for in the, the, the French and EU ecosystem now on the Crowdcube cap table. We think that's going to accelerate our European expansion quite considerably um, at a time when um, the French market is poised for rapid growth in terms of private company investments because of the introduction of a sort of enhanced or revised uh, tax relief scheme um, from January next year, um, essentially the UK equivalent to the EIS scheme. Um, so it's all systems go in, in Europe for us, and, and we think this deal um, really helps accelerate things. Um, and the overarching theme is the private markets are hot right now, and they weren't hot a while ago. Um, they are hot now. The public markets aren't hot, um, and we're right in the epicentre of all of that. That, um, Matt, is an incredibly... Um, comprehensive it just sets the context um really nicely and i could see our panel were sort of identifying with it and nodding along uh what are your thoughts on this one val yeah so look i mean i obviously work for one of the private fintech unicorns um oak north and uh you know uh, this really resonates with me because i have equity in the business and um you know we've been very fortunate in various liquidity events um you know primary funding rounds we haven't done one since february 2019 but we've always been given the opportunity to purchase more equity in the business, um, you know, which which I think is is uh, great because obviously people who've put their own money in the business, it's very different kind of ownership thought process if, you, if you're buying equity versus if you're being given equity. But the thing that stood out for me that was very interesting from Semper's website was the fact that they said, by making the value of equity more tangible, we help our partners attract and retain the best talent. And Semper helps companies compete on compensation by providing easy access to liquidity. So I thought that whole angle around the employee experience and actually making uh, the employee, um, you know, give them stronger negotiation power, but also, um, you know, that that looking at this as part of their sort of, um, uh, you know, that it, we all we, we all have the option, hopefully, when you're joining a fintech or a startup to get um, shares, but the actual opportunity to have the ability to sell them at some point and unlock some of that liquidity pre-IPO or any other event um, that, that, you know, you would typically have. I think is very interesting. And, and that's something, again, you talked about private markets are super hot right now. So is the employee market, right? I mean, um, not not least because there are a number of fintechs that have had to, unfortunately, let go of a lot of really great talent, um, you know, given the ongoing challenges. And so there are 
you know, a lot of people um, out there who, you know, who can hopefully, um, you know, look at this and think, okay, that's something I can start to think about as I look at my compensation. Thanks for bringing that up, Val, because the, the employee liquidity piece is, is really important. And I'll, I'll give you a, an example of where we think we can get to, which is um, I'll routinely go and meet great stage um, CEOs and founders in, in Paris and ask them about their entry and exit interview process. And it's fascinating that for 99% of them, they now have um, their approach, their company approach to providing liquidity to employees as one of the entry and exit interview questions. So there is an expectation that if I'm going to go and work for you, I want to be clear on your approach to providing me with some liquidity at a future point in time. Now, our hope is that that becomes a lot more universal across the uh, the EU and certainly in the UK where it's much less discussed. You're fortunate working at, at Oak North that you've been relatively progressive in your approach to it. But we'd ideally like to see it as um, something which is spoken about at interview phase alongside my pension benefits and your company approach to healthcare and childcare. I mean, I think absolutely this is something that's going to come up more and more, especially in the wake of, you know, failures of, or, you know, we work going into administration as an example, you know, a lot of people there were given equity. If they'd had the access to something like this, to a platform like this, to be able to sell some of the, their equity, uh, you know, before before uh, the shit hit the fan, uh, excuse my French, then then I think, um, you know, many people would be much better off. So, um, you know, very, very much needed. And I think um, we're just going to see more and more of it uh, in the wake of we work and other, other businesses like that um, experiencing difficulties. You mean you mean if they had the the option to cash out at forty seven billion rather than the fifty million is currently valued and soon to be Correct, probably exactly. a lot closer exactly. to zero. Um, but you know Matt, that was the opportunity that many other people got that they didn't get as employees, right? So so I think um, it's it's making it actually, as you say, democratizing it, making it much more equal for for the employee. Matt, that's exactly the point that I wanted to call out because I think it's probably a slightly different lens on that sort of mission and that vision piece that you mentioned um but it is it is still that sort of like democratization expanding that access and the sort of negotiating power and everything that that Val's just mentioned yeah i mean when we when we think about our business um we have to think about it as a marketplace which we have we have a buy side and we have a sell side so we're continually trying to solve for both sides of the marketplace and on the buy side so that's the investor side we're very focused on on access to private market investments in all of their different shapes and forms in in countries across the EU and the the UK. And we're making a pretty good stab at at that so far. And we really changed the landscape um, in terms of enabling everyday people to invest in private companies for the the first time when we started on our journey a decade ago. Um, On the company side, it's about providing founders and, and uh, executives and CEOs with the tools to attract, retain talent, to um, look for liquidity opportunities where the routes that they used to have open to them are now shut um, and continue to innovate around um, where people can look to sell some shares in their business in order to continue on the journey, um, having taken some of those stresses and strains away in terms of um, not having their entire private wealth locked up in a in a company they spend 16 hours a day building. Yeah, it makes it a lot more tangible and a lot more real. Um, Olivia, keen to keen to kind of uh, get your thoughts on this one. What was your uh, what was your initial reaction when you uh, when you sort of when you read this story? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, the kind of angle of the retail investor was really interesting to me for this. I have invested on Crowdcube. Um, I'll be honest, Matt, it was because one of my friends had a company that was doing a crowdfunding round and asked people to get involved. And and I think that will be many people's experience where, you know, this is the first time they've been introduced to the concept of investing and they can now feel like part of their favorite brands and, and get involved in those companies. Um, and now they can perhaps progression, you know, you can take that customer base and mature it and give them give them more options that they might not have considered otherwise. So that was a point I was quite excited about. And then on the other hand, even though you've had these these huge brands on, on Crowdcube, some people may still think it's somewhere you go to invest in your mate's startup. So uh, those people might now, you know, look at this in a slightly different light and start to see a different range of businesses, perhaps more mature businesses on there that uh, that they would be interested in. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, if anyone kind of new joins the platform after this or, or how you grow. Yeah, I mean, lots of people come to Crowdcube to invest in their 
their friends start up and, and back brands and businesses that they believe in, they use, they, they eat, they drink, um, whatever it might be. Um, but we onboard 5,000 new registered investors every seven days. Um, and a big percentage of those investors are starting to take the private markets a lot more seriously uh, in line with the institutional investors, the public market investors starting to take the private markets a lot more seriously. And they're looking for high quality assets across the EU. Um, and generally, you can find them on Crowdcube now, which is pretty exciting. Val, do you think this, um, do you think this makes the, the sort of, I suppose, the Crowdcube offering, the Crowdcube proposition more, more comprehensive, more, um, I suppose, attractive from a, a, a sort of a retail investor's perspective? And are there any, um, I suppose, risks around actually expanding that access that we should be, uh, we should be thinking about as well? So look, I mean, I think similarly um, to you, Olivia, I've invested through through Crowdcube um, in the past, um, you know, in a, in a few different businesses across different areas. And I think, um, if anything, you know, you, you have to go through when you're sort of signing up for one of those platforms and you're looking to invest, you have to fill out a, a sort of very small survey anyway. So there's a there's already a little bit of a way to do your due diligence to make sure that the, the person investing has some awareness. Um, if anything, I think... Um, the benefit here is just to explain to the consumer what this means. So you you can invest and there is a possibility that um, even if the company doesn't IPO, even if they stay private for much longer, you'll have the opportunity to sell your shares and, and see some return on your investment. Um, so I think that's an awareness thing that's worth flagging because I don't think people necessarily understand primary round, secondary round, pre-IPO. You know, there's, there's some things there that I think we may be more aware of it because we hear it in our companies um, because we, we may, um, as I say, with Oak North, for example, we've had the opportunity, but, you know, for, for sort of laymans who might be investing in, you know, I don't know, a restaurant chain um, that's crowdfunding. And I know a few of our clients at Oak North have done crowdfunds, um, where, you know, so so I think um, that's something where there might be a little bit of awareness building just so the customers actually understand the benefits of a secondary market like this. Yeah, no, completely agree. Um, Matt, look, it's 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 hugely exciting. Um I'm really interested to see how this gets integrated, how it um, scales. It's one we'll definitely keep an eye on. And look, thank you so much for um, jumping on and, and, and sharing your sort of first-hand insights on that one. Um, I am going to move us on um, to our next story. Uh, this one comes from Finextra with a headline, Oak North moves into business banking. The UK small business lender has announced a new business banking service to support SMEs. Each business will be assigned a dedicated business partner who will work closely with each customer to provide a more bespoke experience tailored to the needs of each business. Oak North is currently working alongside founders, CFOs, CEOs and directors in a phased beta launch. Their goal is to, quote, build something from the ground up that scales with entrepreneurs and their aspirations. And businesses can sign up to a waiting list now. CEO of Oak North, Rishi Kosler, says, we know from the last eight years of serving our customers that they don't feel their banking needs are being met by incumbents or other neobanks. They continue to be overlooked and underserved. Given ongoing economic challenges, it is essential that these businesses have the right banking partner to support them. And we're excited to step up to fill this need. Um, Val, it's no secret that I love an Oak North story. Um, what can you... Uh, where can you shine some light on this one for us? Sure. So, I mean, I think, I guess the first question is, well, you know, what are you guys going to be doing that's different to everybody else? And I think, you know, we got the exact same question back in 2015 when we launched Oak North with a focus on commercial lending, right? So um, uh, taking a, a sort of a step back, uh, we focus on what we call the missing middle. So businesses that typically have a between a million to 100 million uh, turnover. So they're much more of the sort of, I guess, the scaling businesses or the scale-ups versus startups. Um, and, you know, we, we got asked, well, everybody does, every bank offers business loans. So what's Oak North going to do that's so special? And, you know, you fast forward the clock eight years, and I think hopefully we've been able to prove that, sure, we do, in theory, on paper, it's just a business loan, but I think we've proven that the way we do it, the way we look at businesses is very different. And we've been able to build a, you know, a, a moderately successful business in a fairly short period of time, um, you know, by, by um, you know, by having that, that really customer centric um, focus. Uh, and that's really what we're trying to do here. You know, if you look at the business banking market today, you've got the big five and about 85% of, of SMEs bank with the big five. Um, 
And we've all heard the pain points of banking with, with those institutions. So I'm not going to bother reeling them off because you guys have covered it a million times on other podcast episodes. Um, and if you look at the neobanks, you know, and other, a lot of other fintechs, they have come to market to address certain pain points. But um, for, certainly for the neobanks, um, their focus has almost been on the, the retail plus, right? They, they built their apps for the consumer. And then they've, um, they've, you know, it, for the most part, and then um, they've sort of added on a, a few different features. They made a few changes so that it can now serve micro and small businesses, much more sort of sole traders. They aren't going after the sort of mid market because that's just simply the, the complexity of those businesses, the ownership structures, the requirements and the, um, you know, the, the, the level of servicing they need and also the debt finance levels and other products and services they need simply aren't fit for the sort of apps and automation that, that those kinds of businesses have been built upon. Um, so you end up still with this missing middle, this gap in the market, just like we saw with commercial lending. And as, as sort of Rishi said in the quote, you know, after so many years of sort of speaking to customers, they're like, I wish all of my banking was as easy as it is with the lending part that I get to do with Oak North. Then I have to go back to whichever institution and have to go back to my day-to-day -day banking and it's so painful. And we sort of heard this over the years and I think then felt that actually, um, you know, now at this point in our journey, um, we have the conviction, we have a strong enough hypothesis, we have a strong enough existing customer base, um, we have the data and analytics capabilities to really understand the, the customers and their pain points. And it's a really important time for those businesses, because this is a time when they are being, um, you know, debanked and being um, uh, dismissed almost in a lot of cases by, by their banks who are just simply saying, you know, um, look, we'll do the we'll do the bare minimum for you, but we're really not going to go above and beyond at the moment because you're just not a business or a sector that we're particularly excited about. And if, if anything, we're um, we're trying to do less of of stuff with with your type of business. Um, so we just feel like they're being left out in the cold, and it's an opportunity for us to step up and fill that uh, that gap. I love that. I also appreciate the humility in um, you've built a moderately successful business, or maybe actually it's just a sign of um, the ambition um, that's still left from here. Um, Val, maybe tell us a little bit um, in terms of the, the the quote kind of business partner model. I know that you guys already have um, incredible pedigree in how you use humans in the, the lending side of the business and doing that with real impact. So what's it going to look like in this business partner context? Sure. So I think, again, you know, uh, we saw when we first came to market in 2015, we talked about how we were going to have a really customer centric model and how we were going to build really strong relationships. And it's sort of we, we call our, our, our frontline sales team for, for lending our debt finance directors. And you could sort of say, well, isn't that just a glorified relationship manager, which is what you essentially get called if you're in any of the other big banks. Um, and and again, I sort of say, sure, like call it whatever you want. But the proof is in is in the pudding. And I think, you know, again, eight years on, uh, the relationships that we have with customers, um, our net promoter score, the referral rates that we have, right? 80% um, of our new business comes from customer referrals. So we don't, you know, only 20% is, is sort of marketing or, or um, any sort of paid uh, through broker channels and, and the like. The majority, the vast majority is, is from those customer referrals. About 50% uh, of our customers are now repeat customers. And considering we've only been lending for eight years, you know, it's sort of they pay off their loan and then they need more money and they come back to us rather than going somewhere else, even though we're, you know, we're not the cheapest in the market by by any means. Um, and I think here the, the whole, the whole, um, premise of this is that you would have someone who isn't just another customer service manager who you call and you never get an answer or you send an email and it takes three weeks for them to respond or they say oh that's not really my area let me pass you on to someone in the fx team let me pass you on to someone in the payments team let me pass you on to someone in the loans team or debt finance team um and then that person has to kind of get to know your business from from scratch this person you know and again probably because at oak north we don't operate in silos right we very much operate as, as one team and that's part of the nature of the fact that we're still a young enough business and we built it from in that way that we we don't have those silos. So um, we'll be able to hopefully provide that customer with a much more holistic experience that's much more streamlined, but also crucially focuses on their pain points. So it's not saying, here's a menu of all the stuff we offer, go away and try and figure out how it works for you, but actually saying, okay, so tell me what, what things bother you, tell me what things are, are challenging right now, and then we go away and have a think about how can we design a solution for them that actually makes sense to the business. And I mean, some of the pain points that have come up um, you know, one that, that really stuck out to me, because I just think it sort of brings us to life so so um, clearly is, uh, you know, in, in property, you have a lot of property developers, SME house builders, and every time they're doing a new project, they set up a special purpose vehicle. Um, then you have to go to your bank and you have to apply for a bank account for that special purpose vehicle, which could take up to three months. 
even though you might have been banking with that bank for a decade or more, it's as if you're treated like a whole new customer, even though you've gone through the due diligence, even though they know who you are. Um, so the ability to open an account for that special purpose vehicle in a matter of days would be game changing for these types of businesses. It means they could get on with, um, you know, with, with uh, their project without delay. Equally, if you've got a business that typically does very large transfers, so transfers that may be over a million pounds on a fairly regular basis, most banks block uh, payments up to up to a certain amount. It depends. It could be 50K, 250K. There are some that go up to a million, but these get blocked. Um, and then again, it takes days, if not weeks, to get the red flag unblocked, creating delay in your business. If you can say, we understand this business, we understand that this is totally, these kinds of large transfers are totally normal for this business and this type of sector. So we can go and of course, we'll still block it initially, but we can hopefully unblock it much more quickly um, and, and get through that bottleneck much more quickly so the business can get back to actually their growth rather than having to deal with painful um, conversations with their bank. So it's it's really taking everything we know about the missing middle, everything we know about specific sectors and their unique pain points and then trying to as i say build from the ground up with those founders so that even though on the, the on the surface products and services might be the same just like on the surface a business loan is the same uh but the way you present it and the way that the customer experience um is uh can feel dramatically different and can have dramatically outsized impact for the business yeah and and actually bringing it to life with those um example pain points is really helpful and i think it sort of illustrates the point that there's almost as many pain points for smes as there are there are smes right like they're really unique um in terms of like the businesses and 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 and, and their needs um olivia what do you what do you think about this one yeah i think you're absolutely right about the kind of the fact they're all so unique and have different problems i think this speaks to just a wider issue where in the UK, I think an SME can be anyone from one employee to 500 employees. You don't have to be a genius to work out that they are not going to be the same kind of business with the same needs. Um, and I think what Val mentioned was really interesting, how we've seen some of the fintechs come out and say they're supporting small businesses and they, they're they absolutely doing some great things. But it feels still like a B2C offering because the people they're supporting are those sole traders, you know, the founder who's got a few employees and they are offering them some great, great products and services, but there just comes that point where it's not enough anymore. Um, and I, I liked, I read a few versions of, of this story and it's talking about kind of overwhelming businesses with a menu of loads of products and features and, um, you know, being an option in a sea of apps and things like that, which I think is quite clearly referencing some of these marketplace models we have for SMEs at the moment. Um, this is something we see in the embedded finance space a lot, where I think companies think embedded finance is just, we're going to build a super app. No one's ever going to leave this app. It's going to have everything you could possibly want in this app. And that that's not really what it's about, actually. What it's about is saying, you know, what's our core offering? Who are our customers? We've gathered all this data on what they actually need. How can we, you know, introduce, you know, even two or three different tailored products that actually work for them? Um, I think that would be great for SMEs. And then I think those SMEs that are scaling, as Val said, need that that extra bit of support. So I think, yeah, this does fill a gap and it's nice to to not hear SMEs being lumped into this pile for once. I mean, yeah, I think you've, you've really hit the nail on the head, Olivia. I mean, if you look at what has made um, some of these challenger banks like Monzo, Revolut, um, Starling so successful, uh, with consumers is that it's it's the personalization right and it's the fact that they have a, something that really works for them um businesses have not had that experience it's still being presented with a list of things and being told go away and make it work for you this is the the experience we're trying to create is something that feels highly personalized to each business depending on their unique sector and those pain points but also the growth opportunities in the sector given what might be happening in the broader marketplace and the broader economy yeah i love i love the thing about like how do you grow with those businesses, um, and I think I think that's the point. Um, Matt, what's your uh, what's your reaction to this story? A couple of things. I think um, I agree with you, Ross. Val's uh, being incredibly modest about the the business they they built at Oak North. Uh, I get, one of the things I was pondering there were whether the missing middle know they're in the missing middle, and do they know what they're missing? Um, which I think is quite an interesting question. Um, do you just accept that you're in the missing middle and things are pretty universally shit? Um, and I wonder how you get um, in front enough of those companies um, to make them aware that Oak North have a very customer-centric experience based on learned experience within the bank. Um, and I kind of like that 
idea of that challenge of, of how many of that missing middle you can get in front of and make them aware that they're definitely in the missing middle at the moment. Um, also agree with Olivia's point around um, uh, SME as a term being very broad brush. Um, we have it in the, the investment industry as well with the, the term high net worth or retail. Um, it was kind of coined 20 years ago and it hasn't changed. Um, and we think there's an interesting um, uh, challenge to reclassify um, people uh, for right now, um, not what things were 20 years ago. And I think it's the same in SME banking um, in terms of small, medium enterprises ranging from one employee to 501 employees of very, very different organizations. Yeah. And, and, and also, how do you how do you classify and engage with those customers based on, for example, like the sector that they're in rather than a reflection of the bank, which is like, oh, we'll serve them regionally or whatever it is. Um, and I think I completely agree that there's so much um, that could be done there. Um, I'm going to have to move us into the break. I think we've had two great stories um, to kick us off. We could have probably talked about both of them um, for the entire show, but I am going to take us to a quick pause and we'll be with you very shortly. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, before we get back into the second half of the news, a note to go check out our most recent FinTech Insider Insight show. Our very own Kate Moody is joined by Nicholas Persson, the CEO of Deedster and Bloomberg's climate reporter Akshat Rassi to take a closer look at how climate change is impacting the FinTech space. They discuss how FinTechs are embedding green thinking into their business model and culture, how FinTechs can support other organizations to deliver their own climate targets, and what obstacles and opportunities the industry faces as climate change becomes increasingly important to consumers, companies, and regulators. So do go check out that episode in your podcast feed. It's going to be the one just below this one. Um, so let's get back into the news. Now, this story comes from Alt-Fi with a headline, Plaid and Adyen team up to dominate the US. So it's quite a dramatic headline. European payments giant Adyen is joining forces with US open banking provider Plaid to roll out its pay-by-bank offering in North America by early 2024. Adyen already offers over 150 different payment methods in the US and Canada, but looks to increase its footprint. Plaid is forecasting to process over 2 billion open banking payments in the US this year and expect this to ramp up significantly with Adyen's partnership. According to research quoted in Alt-Fi, global open banking payments are approximately $57 billion this year and are expected to grow uh, by a quite incredible 500% over the next four years. So, Olivia, um, we're keen to come to you first uh, on this one, I suppose, being in this space. What's your uh, what's your read on this? How big is it? Yeah, there's, there's a few questions. I see a huge number of stats on the adoption of open banking, and a lot of them are around consumers being really keen to adopt it. I don't think consumers are actually talking about it in the same language maybe the fintech industry is talking about it. Um, but what I do think is an expectation that this does um, make a lot easier is kind of instant settlement. So we don't want to be paying with card and waiting while it's pending on our credit card or anything like that. These days, we, we expect to see all that instantly and be able to manage our money better. So I think that's, that's a, a positive there. Um, I think the main point around this I was at Seamless Europe um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, which was focused around e-commerce and retail, a lot of merchants there, and and they were all very kind of adamant that if you don't offer your consumer their preferred payment option, they will go somewhere else. You know, this was a big kind of, I hadn't seen it from that side before. I've only seen it from trying to sell different payment options before. Um, and it was definitely something that they are concerned about and they want to be able to offer their customers uh, as many choices as possible and actively looking into that. So to be able to do that through a single provider like Adyen seems seems really, uh, really sensible. Um, you would have thought 150 different options was enough, but I guess 151 might, uh, <laughs> might yeah, just might, push might, the needle on that. The balance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, from a consumer perspective, I'm not sure how, how big those pain points are. I'll be interested to see the, the progress of people, particularly in the U S market shifting towards open banking, but, um, certainly from the merchant side, I think there is that demand. And, and Olivia, maybe um, for uh, any of our listeners that aren't quite familiar with um, pay-by-bank transactions, maybe could you give us just a little bit of an overview around what they are and how they work? Yeah, so I guess that the main difference is rather than having to go through card payment or anything like that, you can pay you know, from one account to another uh, directly from your bank account. So you don't have 
that kind of card uh, rails in the middle. And uh, also, as I mentioned, it's kind of instant settlement through API. So um, it gives people gives people that bit more control. Um, it's also a kind of another option from setting up things like direct debits or automated payments. So people don't feel like they're, they're not in control of um, settling that. Yeah, really nice. Um, Matt, I know I sort of poked fun at the headline a little bit saying that they're going to come and they're going to dominate the US. Um, but what was what was your reaction to this one? I think it was a very male, very flex uh, headline, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, does anyone truly come and dominate the US? Um, it's pretty, pretty strong stuff. Um, I don't know. I wonder whether there's a uh, sort of Stripe question in here somewhere. Uh, you know, why were they teaming up with Adian and not their big US competitor in, in Stripe? Is there some bad blood there? Is there not? I don't really know. Um, I'm sort of intrigued as to how it plays out for the consumer in the sense that there's 150, as Olivia said, different uh, different um, uh, payment options here. Like, is the consumer that obsessed with speed, instant settlement, instant transparency? Maybe they are. Maybe that says something about the society we live in today that, I, you know, that millisecond I get back in my day, I can use online doing something else, um, which feels a bit dystopian. But, um, um, yeah, I think it's the the sort of why them, why now, and why not Stripe is the interesting question. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. And and actually on the point about um, 150 and, and soon to be 151 um, payment methods, I'd probably argue that uh, that's quite overwhelming. But I suppose we are seeing a bit of a revolution in payments at the moment, a lot of it being led by open banking, you know, as well as pay by bank, a lot of talk about like variable recurring payments and all of that sort of stuff. Um, Val, do you think open banking is like the future of payments? What's your sort of reaction to this one? Yeah, I mean, I think look, the, the benefits for the consumer, you've, you've kind of already talked about um, a number there. That's the speed, it's the transparency, it's being able to check your balance before you, you pay so you can keep track of your spending. But there's also the fact that you can, um, you know, you can pay online, you know, uh, you can sort of manage fraud, right? Because you um, you don't have to put your card details in. Uh, there's less human error, right? I mean, a few times you might put in one wrong digit and you think, oh, I maybe don't have enough money on my card or something. And actually it turns out that it's just that you um, you just put in the wrong digit somewhere. So that's also something that I think is a big benefit. In terms of, you know, why Stripe? I mean, this is a big question, right? I mean, CNBC, when they reported um, on, uh, on Arjun having got their UK banking license um, back in September, the, the headline was um, uh, Stripe rival Agin secures banking license in the UK. And I think another interesting thing that kind of uh, came out of this and now this, this sort of bigger um, relationship is obviously they proved that you can, as a very big institution, even a listed institution, get a um, banking license in the UK. And, and obviously we know that others such as Revolut are trying to do that. Um, Revolut is another example here of a business that might be a competitor. So I think it's an interesting thing from that perspective as well. Olivia, on the point about... Um... It was something I wanted to circle back to you about as well. The point about um, fraud and controlling the risk of fraud. Um, how important do you think that is in the sort of pay by bank context? And how much do you think it's considered a factor for consumers? Yeah, I think from the consumer perspective, I think Val's right in terms of that worry. I think most consumers are most worried about their card details. Right now, we're kind of used to sharing our certain details around our bank account to make transfers and to request money from other people. Um, so I think there's less of a, a panic there um, around it. But I also think, yeah, it's it's also comfort levels. People will have different comfort levels with their current methods of payment. And it's up to kind of, it will, the adoption will be a little bit slower where people are just getting used to it. I think that's another thing, just the language I always have had a bit of an issue with where if you went into your banking app and you're not in the fintech space and it said, do you want to use open banking? You'd think that sounds obviously like a terrible idea because I don't want to uh, enable my bank account to be open. Um, that's the opposite of what I want. So I think it's it's about how how this is actually pitched to consumers and also to merchants. And I think on that point, you know, we've, we joked about the 150 different options. Presumably merchants will be able to kind of tailor those options to their customers. And what I would be interested to see is, you know, what data are those merchants able to get from their customers to understand which methods they're now going to try out and, and which will be successful. So I can't wait to see whether the predicted figures are, are true on that. It raises, it raises an interesting point for me. Um, 
like Matt, do you think how, how much of this, um, at least from the consumer's perspective, is around understanding and almost um, education? And I suppose I'm thinking again in the context of like that checkout and the fact that it's all very noisy now and there's all of these different buttons and embedded and pay by bank and all of that sort of stuff. How is the average consumer supposed to understand what's the best option for them? It's a really good question. And we all work in fintech and we get overwhelmed and confused at times. Um, for the you know, average consumer in the UK, uh, it must be massively overwhelming and massively confusing. Um, and that's not suggesting for a second that those individuals are financially illiterate or uneducated, but it's just a lot to consider. And Olivia's point about, you know, open banking sounds rather scary. I'd quite like my bank account to be closed to everybody else, please, is a classic example of where we all, you know, we talk about open banking because we work in financial technology, but no one else really gives a shit about it. Um, and I just want a smooth, secure checkout experience with, with as little noise as possible. Um, I, I think for certain use cases, it, it's super interesting. You know, um, uh, what do you have on recurring payments? Uh, car leases, utilities, rent, bills, that type of thing. Insurances. Um, it seems to make a lot of sense. Um, but I think we just need to do a better job of, of um, uh, removing buzzwords, simplifying language, and talking to people who don't actually work in financial technology firms um, in a way they understand. I totally agree. And Val, just circling back on uh, your, your your point about Adyen versus the likes of Stripe and Revolut. Um, final word on this: Do you think this kind of um, this kind of partnership actually puts Adyen in a slightly different league? I mean, I, I would have put Agin there anyway, personally, just because I, I, I'm a big fan of Agin. I think they're in a very strong business. They've built a very profitable business. Um, there's always been a lot of transparency in their business model. Um, you know, and I think, I, as I say, that sort of that CNBC article sort of said, called, described them as a stripe rival. So I think they were already in that league, um, in my opinion, and, and in the opinion of CNBC and potentially a number of others as well. Um, and yeah, certainly this just sort of solidifies that even more and, and let's see if they can make it in the US that's that's really um uh will you know will really be an amazing milestone because they are obviously listed in uh, on Euronext they're a Euro Europe listed company um if they can make a you know big headway in the US that might make them think about a potential relisting in the future right in the US somewhere where they they could potentially just have access to a, a, mar a larger growth investor market yeah absolutely um all right, cool. I am going to move us on to our next story, which comes from the Brazilian report uh, with the headline, German Digital Bank N26 Pulls Out of Brazil. The move comes just three years after they entered uh, LATAM and less than a year after launching their app across Brazil. So N26 announced all operations will be shut down in the country by December 7th. This includes all basic banking services, including payments and credit and debit cards. N26 is a neobank founded in 2013 and now serves 9 million customers across 24 different markets. The decision to exit Brazil is in line with its strategy to focus on core European markets and comes after Revolut entered the market earlier this year. So, um, Matt, I guess it's quite a rapid turnaround uh, going from sort of entering Brazil to then exiting Brazil. Um, what do you read on this? Why couldn't they quite make it work? Rapid turnaround, yes. Rapid change in markets and macroeconomic environment, also yes. Um, so it, I don't find it massively surprising. Um, if this is a kind of cockroaching strategy, which is uh, we're going to focus exclusively on our core markets, where, by the way, we're super worried about Revolut, and we're not going to focus on um, uh, markets further away or, 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 or newer because by the way we're also worried about Revolut in addition to other incumbents I kind of get that as a strategy um, so I'm not massively surprised um, yes it's still a big business but it doesn't mean they can't be fiscally responsible um, and conservative when thinking about lasting out next year you know, when the, the capital markets might return to some sense of normality and there might be more capital available to them. Um, so, yeah, not massively surprised. 
I mean, it was an interesting one because obviously in their core market of Germany, they're currently under restrictions from BaFin that they can only open 50,000 accounts a month. So there is a bit of a question of how much more low-hanging fruit is there in their core markets, um, you know, to see that kind of growth that, that their investors expect to sort of maintain a valuation um, that they have and, and to kind of give them the, the continued growth to, to really um, be a genuine challenger to, to um, you know, incumbent institutions. Um, I kind of feel bad. I just feel like they can't catch a break like, between pulling out of the UK, pulling out of the US. I mean, Brazil was an interesting choice because obviously Newbank dominates South America as a, as a continent. Uh, it's an interesting choice to, to go somewhere like that, thinking, you know, this is somewhere that uh, it's not, you know, it's not, a, it's not in a country where, you know, X number of, of, um, of people bank with one large income institution. It's actually, no, millions of people bank with the new you know, challenger on the block, and uh, that's New Bank. Are you going to offer something that's so much better than New Bank um, to actually, you know, um, to actually create a proper market there? Because you know they've already got all the low hanging fruit, plus all the people that are above the low hanging fruit, plus the people who are above those people. Um, so I, I don't really know what the thought process was there in terms of going into Brazil, um, focusing on their core markets. You know, let's see. But I, as I say, they've got restrictions with BaFin, and and I think that's going to be a tricky one. Um, you know, for them to maintain the sort of the growth that they need uh, in those markets. People are coming to eat their lunch in their main markets as well, right? Yeah, 100%, 100%. They're they're under pressure from the regulator and they're, you know, they're pulling back from from markets like Brazil. At the same time, they're under, I suspect, um, considerable pressure in in the big markets they operate in. So it's um, a difficult position to be in. Yeah, I mean... um... I liked I liked Val's point about um, them not being able to catch a break, and I, like optics are important, right? And I suppose when you're going into new markets, and then you know you have a, a pattern sort of starts to emerge where you can't really quite get that foothold, um, and whatever the reasoning behind it, obviously, as you say, they've come out of the UK now, um, they've also come out of um, Brazil. And, you know, the point about Nubank is such a good one. Like they've got 80 million, like eight zero million customers in brazil alone you've got revolut that are now going into brazil and of course they don't do things um by half so olivia how much of this you know take all of matt's um points on board about fiscal responsibility and all of that sort of stuff but actually how much do you think is this being driven by them just not being able to compete against some of these other challenges yeah, I think as as Val said as well, they they have had a bit of a mare in terms of their international um, expansions, and and I think part of that as well is is a wider fintech story about fintechs that were on this massive growth um, trajectory that are now thinking, what can I do to actually, you know, I mean, if I was them anyway, kind of try and generate more revenue from the customers I already have, right? So focus on those core markets and actually um, become profitable there. And I think. To your point around kind of why they've struggled so much with that as an alternative, I think that's another thing all fintechs, especially them, should be thinking about is, are we going into a market where there is a big pain point and there aren't those other options? Um, And I don't think that's that's always the case when we think about it. And I think, I don't know a huge amount about the Brazilian market, but I see so many, you know, incumbent banks even now, like we mentioned, kind of maybe Santander, that's that's quite big big over there as well. their, their digital offering isn't that bad. You know, it's not that painful to use anymore the way it was maybe five, six years ago in a lot of these markets. And and people aren't kind of dreading using it all the time to the point where they're going to switch over uh, to a new uh, offering. So maybe that time has kind of passed and it's time for them to think, okay, let's think about doubling down in this market. And there are threats, uh, as Matt mentioned, from other, other, other challenges there. But, you know, what can they offer that's actually going to bring, in their, bring them new revenue, add value for their customers and, and keep that loyalty? I think that's kind of their only option at this point. Um, I also just think it's, you don't always get another chance to enter a new market. You have to be really careful. So what I hear from a lot of companies is if you kind of go in and then pull out of the market, it's very hard to build up back that brand and back that trust. Um, and so you can't just kind of, it, it even seemed like they weren't there for very long and they hadn't actually released all of their products there yet. There were some waiting lists and, and things like that. So I think um, from my reading of it anyway, so I think once you you're looking at entering a new market, you kind of have to go all in, not just with like what you think the MVP is for that market or what you think has worked in another market. You have to really uh, release something that works um, for that for that sector. So um, perhaps they they need to just think more carefully next time they expand. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely I completely agree. And, and you know, we've talked about um, 
you know, N26 focusing on their core market and focusing on their home market and how people, you know, are coming now to sort of steal some of their lunch, you're going into New Bank's home market, right? They were founded in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So they understand the market incredibly well. They understand the consumer and their pain points incredibly well. You're coming into their turf when they've already got, as you say, Ross, 80 million customers. Um, you know, even if you got, if you managed to convince 10% of those 80 million to switch, you're still so far behind them and you've got millions of customers. Um, it's a very, as I say, it's sort of like, um, you know, sure, it's, it's a big fish and maybe, maybe the thinking was, well, there's so many more customers we can go after. But I feel like, well, if they were going to switch to you, then why wouldn't they have switched to New Bank anyway? What I will say, though, is that the kudos to N26, because at least when they fail, they fail fast and they get out of there quickly. They don't spend more time, money, resource, trying to, you know, beat a dead horse and make it work. And, you know, there are so many um, in incumbent financial institutions and so many other businesses and actually lots of other fintechs that haven't learned that mistake, that continue to try. They spend so many marketing dollars. They think, we'll just give it another six months. We'll just give it another 12 months. Um, and they burn through their, their VC cash as a result. And I think, you know, kudos to N26 for at least failing fast. I think that's a really, really good call out. <clears throat> Matt, final word to you on this one. Um, where do you think N26 goes from here? Do you think they can sort of like consolidate those core markets, as Olivia says, become sort of profitable and then sort of um, continued success from there? Honestly, I have no idea. Um, they uh, clearly know what they're doing. They've got, what, 8 million customers. Um, I agree with Val. They, they seem to fail fast um, when international expansion doesn't play out. Um, but international expansion and expansion more generally is um, far easier when you're throwing off free cash flow and you're able to reinvest in growth. Um, how quickly they can get to that point, I don't know. Um, but what we do know is that that there are a, a host of, of other businesses, particularly across the EU, that are growing exceptionally quickly, um, seem to have the balance sheet and the capacity to invest aggressively in expansion and are executing really well. Um, I think it's a tricky, tricky position to be in, um, but they've built the business to the scale they have um, uh, by being smart and um, and um, making informed decisions at the right time. Um, I don't think there's any reason to suggest that they won't continue to do that, but I, it's probably quite a bind, um, I guess, in summary. Yeah, and that summarizes it really well, actually. Um... So on that, I'm going to take us through to uh, our next section, which is Big Click Energy, a quick fire round roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. So this one comes from Finextra with the headline, Klarna creates UK holding company as IPO moves closer. So the BNPL provider is restructuring its legal entity in the UK as it takes, quote, an important early step on a journey towards an eventual IPO. It is reported that its initial valuation could be in the region of between 15 to $30 billion. Uh, that's more than double its valuation after its last funding round in 2022. And this news comes after it struck a deal with staff in Sweden to stave off a strike. So I think this is obviously incredibly interesting um, in terms of that valuation, quite substantial, probably booking um, current market trends and definitely one, I think, for us to uh, keep an eye on. Uh, the next story comes from yourmoney.com <clears throat> with a headline, John Lewis launches new BNPL offerings to customers. The established retailer is offering new credit options to customers on purchases between £200 and £25,000. Its long-term interest-free product will still be available, but customers will now have the option to spread payments over 12, 24, 36 or 48 months at 16.9% APR. However, only customers with an annual income of at least £10,000 will be eligible. We ran a poll asking our community if they would be more likely to treat themselves to something expensive if BNPL was an option, and only 15% said yes. That's interesting. Though this piques the interest of us fintechers, we expect most people will be more interested in their new Christmas advert. Um, I think this one is quite interesting, actually. I mean... Um, lots happening in the BNPL space, right? Like both of these uh, big click energy stories have related to um, BNPL and actually John Lewis entering this space, a retailer with a really, um, really strong brand around um, trust and sort of um, really positive consumer perceptions. Actually, I think uh, 
could be could be a bit of a, a disruptor, a bit of a game changer. So again, I think one to keep an eye on. Um, and now it's time for our and finally section of the show, which uh, regular listeners will know is a look at something more offbeat from the news this week. Uh, this one comes from CoinDesk. Um, might explain why it's a little bit more offbeat. Uh, the Simpsons target NFTs in their latest, quote, Treehouse of Horror episode. So John Lewis Christmas ads aside, the Simpsons Halloween specials have been a TV institution for decades. In their latest Treehouse of Horror, non-fungible tokens or NFTs were the butt of the joke as they made several jibes at their overvaluation. The episode sees Bart become a living NFT and the mayor of Springfield announcing the art gallery will be digitized. Uh, Do you know what, Val? I'm going to come to you first on this one just because I've got absolutely no idea what's real or what's going on anymore. Uh, what, What do you think? I mean, yeah, like, look, I think, um, uh, you know, Simpsons has been quite on the money with a lot of um, things in the past. They made jokes and then suddenly you see like 10 years later and, um, you know, it's uh, it's actually come to pass. Uh, and I know they made jokes before about Trump and, and that he would become president. And then, you know, we all know how that story ended. So um, I would say, you know, um, laugh and joke with with caution, because maybe, uh, you know, you, we might be um, the butt of the joke in, in a, you know, in a few years time. Um, I mean, I never got the NFT thing. Um, you know, there was, uh, I mean, you've seen this, I've seen sort of digital art galleries and a number of other things. I saw people on Twitter sort of buying those, um, you know, those space apes or whatever they were called, uh, you know, those like uh, monkey characters um, and then changing their, their Twitter or X um, images to them and just thinking, you know, what on earth is this and why have they purchased that? But um yeah, maybe, again, maybe I'm missing a trick. I, I have purchased an NFT in the past, but um, that was for a, a comic, um, you know, really geeking out here, but like a comic that I, I read. And then basically they were only going to release future um, versions of this digitally through the NFT. So I was like, if I want to keep following this, I have to get the silly NFT. So I'll just do that. Um, uh, but yeah, that's, that's been my only experience NFTs. And I wouldn't say I really understood what I was buying, but at least I've been able to continue reading the comics. I love it. It's very, um, stick over carrot, isn't it? To get you to buy your NFT, but hey, ho. um, Olivia, what do you think of the Simpsons predicting the future here? Are we all going to become living NFTs, whatever those are. I am. Um, yeah. I thought the exact same thing, Val. I was thinking about all the things they predicted that have come true. So you have to be careful what you say, but, uh, I think, to the general public, at least, and to most people, NFTs have always been a little bit of a joke for the past couple of years. You know, no one has really taken them that seriously, apart from those kind of people that are really avid about them. Um, what I was surprised was, oh, they're still talking about it, because I, certainly in within the fintech space and the people I talked to, last year, this was a really big topic, and, and this year it wasn't so much. Um, so the Simpsons are normally more on the button um, than that. But uh, I think it's an interesting one. But uh, my only view on NFTs, I you know, wouldn't necessarily invest in one with a view to making lots of money. Um, but I think what Val said was interesting because where I do see them as as an interesting thing is to become part of an exclusive community. I saw them used in that way quite a lot. That's something that could carry on and could be quite interesting. Um, but no, I don't, I don't currently own an NFT and no plans to invest in uh, Simpsons or otherwise. Yeah, but your point's a good one. I mean, what are the, what are the unique problems that nfts can solve or what's the unique value that they can add for people and then let's go down that route um matt final word to you on this one what do you what, what was what was your reaction well look if you want to feel part of uh, uh the community of a, a business or brand or comic book that you love there's a very simple way to do that which is to get the business to crowdfund and become a shareholder in that community um, and if that's the use, if that's the use case, if um, if being part of something and identifying with with a with a business, a brand, or a movement is important to you, then the the, uh, the greatest and strongest manifestation of that is the mechanic of ownership. Um, now that's partly what NFTs are built on, um, but there's a better, simpler, cleaner way of doing that, which is share ownership, which has been around for a little while, and people seem to understand. Um, I still hark back to uh, uh, the Simpsons episode with the monorail. Um, good to see Luton Airport have adopted their new monorail. Uh, there's no massive pink donut, unfortunately, um, but I remain hopeful that that might appear somewhere near the airport at some point soon, perhaps in the site where the huge car park burned down the other week. Um, but I've never owned one. 
I have no plans to own one. Um, I don't know anybody else who owns one. Um, and I don't watch The Simpsons. So um, I don't have a massive amount to add here. I think for someone who didn't have an, a massive amount to add, I think you added a massive amount. Um, <laughs> and I think that probably feels like a really, a really good point to end. Um, so that wraps up this week's episode of FinTech Insider. Um, guys, thank you all so much um, for jumping on and for such a, uh, an enjoyable uh, discussion. Um, where can people find out uh, a little bit more about you, Matt? Let's, uh, let's start with you. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I tend to push out the reasonable amount of content through that. Um, and you can come to to either crowdcube.com or crowdcube.eu if you're in Europe um, and learn about private company investing and, and private markets investing. Amazing. Thanks, Matt. Val, how about you? Sure. So if you're interested in learning more about Oaknoth, then it's oaknoth.com. And if you want to connect with me directly, I'm on LinkedIn. Thanks, Val. Um, and Olivia, how about you? Same as, same as everyone else, um, LinkedIn and MMOB.com. Um, I'm also still on X among all the tumbleweeds uh, that seem to be there as just Olivia Minnick and are generally being a busybody around the fintech space. So you'll probably see me somewhere, even if you don't want to. <laughs> yep. And as for me, sadly, you can also find me over on X at Ross Gallagher 7 um, and thank you very much for listening. Uh, please do join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much and goodbye. <laughs>